hosting it. So sign up if you can um, so we can plan how many are going to come. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. So ladies, we'd love to have you. It's going to be a wonderful time, beautiful morning. And uh, maps to our house, all that information is in the bulletin. And there is a phone number, too, if you need to call. So uh, ladies, breakfast at 830, and then ladies 55 and over, there is a luncheon on Tuesday, so ladies, make sure that you sign up for that, and that's at 1130. They're going to be barbecuing some hamburgers and hot dogs, and that is all in the bulletin. Plus, there is the Men's Golf Fellowship, right, Paul? So they need, if you're going to go, you need to sign up for that. And Sunday morning, we are going to be having our three morning services. We're going to finish uh, Second Peter. We'll be in Chapter 3, and um, in that chapter, these are the last words of Peter that he writes, and he's writing about the return of the Lord. And as we cover chapter 3, what we're going to see is that Peter's going to write about five things that we should know about concerning the return of the Lord. And again, it's a subject that's not talked a whole lot about in the church at large. Uh, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors will avoid that subject because um, they're afraid to talk about it or they feel like it's too much of a burden on the people. But when Paul talked about the return of the Lord, he said, comfort one another with these words. And it's a part of the canon of Scripture. And it's interesting to me that Peter, uh, he is writing these last words um, to the church before the orders come from Caesar Nero to be executed. And so Peter in that last chapter is writing about the return of the Lord. And again, the importance of us in knowing that the Lord is going to come back what's going to happen, and how that should change our behavior. So very important words. And then he finishes his letter. He puts down his pen, and then he would be executed as he would be crucified, a martyr for his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus said that you're going to stretch out your arms there in John chapter 21. So you don't want to miss it if you don't have to. Come out on Sunday morning as we go over Second Peter chapter 3. Then after that, we're going to go over the prison epistles. And the prison epistles include what? Ephesians. I feel like I'm in New Testament survey in my <laughs> high school class. Paul the Apostle is under house arrest in Rome, about 61 AD. And he writes the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the four prison epistles that he writes. He actually wrote other epistles that aren't a part of the canon of Scripture, but we're going to look at those four books over the summer and into the fall, and it's going to be a very, very rich study indeed. So starting in the book of Ephesians, that takes us to the heavenlies. Um, that is a very, very wonderful book. All the books of the Bible are wonderful as we study them. So that's our plan for Sunday mornings after this Sunday when we finish Second Peter. But we do have a Bible study tonight. There's other things that are there in your bulletin, and take a look at those things. And uh, there is the curriculum sw uh, swap for the uh, homeschoolers, so don't forget about that on Saturday morning as well. And Lori is heading that up, Lori Leachman's six or 9 o'clock to noon. Um, you can be here at 6, but I won't be here. And uh, 9 o'clock to noon. And um, so we'll have some guys here to help carry some books in for you ladies if that um, is something of interest for you. So take a look at your bulletin. There's other things that are there. But we do want to get into our Bible study. As Lord, we come tonight and we desire to hear from you. And we took a little bit of time out, Lord, to just um, enjoy a video of, of, of the work that was done this week uh, at the uh, VBS Children's Festival.
And Lord, we're thankful for every child that came, uh, every moment that they were taught the things of God and the gospel message. And Lord, that continues tonight. It continues tonight with us in this room, with the kids in their classrooms, with the youth upstairs, uh, those who are listening on live stream. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would touch every heart here tonight as we just uh, start here in Psalm 37, being encouraged and comforted by the words that David wrote 3,000 years ago, inspired by you. So, Lord, um, take your word and work it in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 37 is a psalm of David, and David writes this. We're going to see evidence, evidence of this as we go through the psalm at the end of his life. So what he's doing is he's speaking from life experiences. And I know that as we go through this psalm, you're going to be greatly encouraged. It's one of my favorite psalms that I like to read because David is talking about uh, the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. And what my prayer is, is that as I get older in the Lord and as I journey in life, I want to be able to declare very, very much with confidence the faithfulness of the Lord and the goodness of the Lord and that we can be ones that rest in him. And so that's what David is doing. And David, as we're going to see, is going to be writing this in the context of that you don't have to be afraid of those who come against us. And you and I as Christians, we will have those people that come against us. It's a promise. It's sometimes a promise that we don't like to hear. But it was Paul that would write to young Timothy that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He did not say you might suffer persecution. And I think that as on Sunday we talk about the return of the Lord, I really believe that we're getting ever so closer to the Lord coming back. I think that personally he can come back at any moment. But as we get closer to the return of the Lord, I believe that it's going to get more difficult and harder for you and I to stand for righteousness. You can sense it now, can't you? That even in our own nation, a nation that we've been free from persecution, a nation that one time declared that we are a Christian nation, all of a sudden we have been for uh, the last several years and the last uh, few decades, we're uh, on that road to to um, moral decline and spiritual decline where we're pushing God out of our society and even the church at large is really struggling and staying faithful and true to the word of God and to the gospel. So here David is, he's talking about evildoers that came against him and David had a lot of experience in that, didn't he? In 1 Samuel, as we've gone through that book, he was pursued by Saul and Saul's men for all those years. And then in 2 Samuel, as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, he went through terrible consequences because of his sin. And part of the consequences was because of, you know, those who came against him. It was Nathan that said to David, David, that you caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And they would come against David and, and even his own family, Absalom, who tried to usurp the throne from him and wanted to kill his own father. So David, at the end of his life here, is speaking about how we don't have to fret when those who come against us. So let's be encouraged by it. As we read in verse 1, uh, David writing, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they sh shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So the ones who come against us, uh, it's very, very easy when that happens to be in despair especially when they're prideful, especially when they're boasting, especially when they'd like nothing more than to make your life miserable. 
And as I mentioned to you, David went through a lot of that in his life. And here at the end of his life, he has learned that he doesn't have to be anxious because eventually he knows that those evildoers, and David wrote a lot about the wicked and evildoers. He's talking about non-believers, those who have come against God and God's word, that they are going to be eventually cut down and wither away. It's not going to be forever. It's going to be temporary, and God's going to be faithful. And in those times, David shows us nine things that you might want to write down in your notes or at least highlight them in your margins in your Bible that we are to do when we have people that come against us, that, that desire to, to make our lives miserable or persecute us or cause us to go through trials and tribulations because we're Christians. Nine things as we read in verses 3 through 8. Let's look, take a look at that. David writes, Trust in the Lord and do good, and dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, and do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, cease, verse 8, from anger and forsake wrath, and do not fret, it only causes harm. So when we have people that come against us, whether it's people at work, or our own family, or in the neighborhood, or perhaps those at school, whoever it might be, number one, what we are to do is we are to trust in the Lord, as he says in verse 3. Number one, trust in the Lord. Now, that's pretty obvious. We trust in Him. That means that we're putting our faith and our confidence in the Lord, that He sees us, and He's going to work on our behalf. And I always want to remind you that if we can trust the Lord with our salvation, we can trust Him with our lives. And so trust in the Lord. It's kind of like when you guys all came in, I didn't see a single person that came in and began to check out the chair, you know, to see if it would hold their weight. None of you looked at it and inspected it. You had the trust that that chair was going to hold you when you sat down in it. And what you and I are to do is that we are to trust in the Lord in every area of our lives, in every situation that we face in life as we turn to Him. So David says, number one, trust in the Lord. And then number two, do good. Now, this is something that has been... Uh, reiterated to me as we've gone through these psalms and, and most of them written by David so far here in book one. And that is David desired to keep his godly integrity as he cried out to the Lord, even when he had those coming against him. And so we've discussed that quite in details as we've talked about David's difficult situations and how Saul pursued him. And, and, and David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. But it's very, very impor important that as we have those who come against us, who try to tear us down or speak against us, that we do good, that we don't try to take manners into our own hands, that we don't have our words be words of sin and, and trying to be you know, hurtful back or try to, in our actions, be vengeful. We need to let the Lord speak to our hearts and through his word how it is that we are to react. So David was one that said, you do good. In other words, you let the Lord determine how it is that you react. And we are going to see as we go through the Psalms in a couple of Psalms here that David's going to talk about how he was angry about a situation. We don't know specifically what it was, but he kept his mouth shut. 
He kept quiet. And oftentimes, we need to know the wisdom between when it is that we speak and when not to speak. And let the Lord be our defender. And it is the wise person who knows the difference, when to keep silent and when to speak up. So David says, I want to do good. I'm going to trust in you. And Lord, I want to keep godly integrity and character in the situation that I am facing that is very difficult even though people are coming against me. Thirdly, it is David that says that you're to feed on his faithfulness. You're to feed on his faithfulness. Know that God is faithful. And one of the things that David at the end of his life as he looks back, he remembers that God is faithful. And I know that the older that I get, I can look back at my past life as a Christian and being in ministry, that God has been very, very faithful. He's been very, very faithful to this ministry. He has provided for us. He has blessed even in the difficult trials that I have gone through personally, that uh, perhaps that, that you might go through. You can look back and see the faithfulness of God, and it's important to remember that. When God was sending the prophets to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the Old Testament, that it was the Lord that would say to them, turn back to me. Don't you remember my faithfulness? How I brought you out of Egypt and into the promised land and gave you this land. I blessed you. And the Lord was always calling them to remember his faithfulness. And you and I are to do the same thing. So number one, we trust in the Lord. Second of all, do good. Thirdly, feed on him and his faithfulness. And then fourthly, what we are to do in verse four is delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So you delight yourself in the Lord. Um, it's important to do that. That word delight means to be pampered. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. In other words, it speaks of the blessings that we have in the Lord. But remember, it's not just enjoying the blessings, but ultimately that we are to enjoy the blesser. You see, it's important that we keep a proper perspective and, and mindset and heart on this. Because the prosperity teachers will come along and they'll use verse 4 here and take it out of context. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, whatever you desire. So you just name it and claim it. You see, that's not ultimately what David is saying at all. I don't believe that. The most important thing for you and I as a Christian is to know the Lord. It's more important than serving the Lord. And I am not saying that serving the Lord is not important. It is very important. But more than that is knowing him and ultimately drawing close to him. And we have seen that that was the desire of David, that he desired to have that close, intimate fellowship with the Lord and to know him and to delight in the Lord. It just simply means that, you know, more than I just want things, but I want more than that. I want to know you, Lord. I want to know the blesser. And as you delight in him and know him and grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ, then your heart is going to have his desires. In other words, he's going to put his desires on your heart. And it's amazing how that happens. It isn't just wanting things, but it's wanting him and growing in your love for him. And that's why it's important that we delight in him. We get our focus on him, not on others, but on him and delight in him. So number four, delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. This is something that I also oftentimes will quote this verse, because as a pastor, I get asked a lot of times, how do I know what God wants me to do? You know, what direction should I go? And I just tell them, delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. One of the questions that I got asked on Calvary Live uh, was, why did God create man? And 
The answer is that we were created for what? His good pleasures, Revelation chapter 4. And we are created to be his workmanship, as he says in chapter 2, verse 10 of the book of Ephesians. And that word workmanship there in the book of Ephesians means a poem, which where we get our English word poem. You are a poem for the Lord, created for good works in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world. You are created to please the Lord, and it is he that works in you, Philippians chapter 2, both to will and to do of his good pleasures. And as you delight in the Lord and grow in the love of Jesus Christ and just saying, Lord, I just want to know you more, then you're going to be amazed how the Lord begins to put desires on your heart. Sometimes people think, well, I don't want to get too serious as a Christian because maybe the Lord will call me in the mission field and I'll have to go somewhere where there's spiders and snakes and all that and I have to eat bugs and I don't like eating bugs. But I'll tell you what, that if you delight in the Lord, that the Lord, if he wants you to go to the jungles of like the Philippines, he'll put it on your heart and you'll have such a desire to go or whether it's to Island Grove to minister the love of Jesus Christ to the children, or whether it's whatever the Lord puts on your heart, and that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, that he will begin to put desires on your heart that you never thought that you would have. And it's a great adventure, and the doors will open up, and, and he'll begin to, to work in you and use you in a way that you never thought was possible or would come about because it is he that works in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. He wants to do so much in your life, whether it's raising your children in the ways of the Lord and just blessing them and being with them and your grandchildren, whether it's just praying for people, whether it's helping out in practical ways, he's going to put those desires and he's going to stir your heart and then being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I rest in that. Lord, I can just delight in you, and I know that you'll get me where you want me to go and put those desires on my heart. So number one, you have written down, trust in the Lord. Second of all, do good. Thirdly, feed on him. Number four, delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And then as we continue in verse five, number five, as you commit your ways to him, he'll bring the promises that he gives to you to pass. And that word commit means to literally roll on, to, to commit to him. Uh, it has the same idea of what Peter wrote in his first epistle, that cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. So you commit everything to him, whatever it is that we face, Whatever decisions you have to make, you roll it on the Lord. You cast it on him. One of the things that <clears throat> Peter, he uses that word to cast upon him is he was a fisherman. And he cast those nets. And I remember that we were on the Sea of Galilee, one of our tours to Israel. And uh, we were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they actually had one of those nets that they would use. And so we, you know, had a demonstration of throwing it over. You just didn't do it part way. You weren't wimpy about it. You took it and you really had to cast it over. And that's the whole idea. Cast it. Give it all to the Lord. Give it to Him because He cares for you. Commit your ways to Him and He's going to take care of you. And then in verses 7 and or 5, uh, we have that. Trust also in Him again. He'll bring it to pass. His promises are true. 
His promises are true for us. Again, one of the questions that I get asked is, why does the Lord allow certain things to happen to me or difficulties, or why is this person coming against me? And I'm sure David asked that a lot. And we may not understand the whys, and we may not have the answers on this side of eternity why, but we do have his promises. And his promises are true for you and for me in whatever it is that we are facing. So commit to him. And then verse 6, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the new day, uh, noonday. And then verse 7, rest in the Lord. So number 6, we are to rest in the Lord. And rest in the Lord describes a, a calm surrender to, to the Lord. You're resting in him. And see, what can happen a lot of times is we're trusting in him, but we're not resting in him. We're very anxious, and, and we're fretting, <clears throat> and we're not resting in his promises. The Lord wants us not only to trust in him, but just have that calm surrender that, Lord, you're working. And I got confidence that you're going to work in my situation, and your promises are true, so I'm going to rest in you as well. And then not only resting in the Lord, but waiting on the Lord is number seven that you can write down. So wait patiently for him. We are to wait on the Lord. You might remember that it was a few psalms ago. It was actually um, in Psalm, um, I can't remember. So, but remember, yeah, um, I'll find it. It'll come to me in just a little bit. Um, but it's the Lord that said, wait on the Lord and be courageous. Again, I say wait on the Lord. And, and David a lot of times talks about waiting on the Lord, and here he does again. He talks about wait patiently for him is what you and I are to do. And it's important in our spiritual life that we wait, that it takes on the idea of being silent before the Lord. We live in such a noisy world. We, we have noise all around us. There's all kinds of, you know, as we have our phones, we have our computers, we have our iPads, there's beeps and sounds and notifications and phones ringing all the time, isn't there? From the time that we get up to the time we end the day. And I think that we live in a world where it's very noisy with all the other things that are going on, and that can carry into our spiritual life to where we're not in that place where we're really in a quiet place of hearing the Lord. It's very important that we do that that on a daily basis that we're quiet before the Lord and in our Christian life to learn to wait on the Lord because we live in an instant world. We want things right away. We don't like to wait. I don't like to wait for my coffee at Starbucks, you know. I want it now. And so it carries on in our spiritual life. And we need to learn to be silent before the Lord and to wait. And to every day just be in that place where I'm going to wait on you, Lord. And I may not understand everything that's going on right now or how it is that you're going to work, but I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to do what's right. I am going to feed on your faithfulness because I know you're going to be faithful to your word to me. And I am going to commit my way to you, Lord. And I'm going to rest in you. I'm not going to fret. And I'm going to wait on you, Lord, because I know that you will bring to pass what is best for me. And I know that you're working. And the Lord desires for us to wait on him so he can speak to us and that we can see how it is that he's working day by day and moment by moment. But again, sometimes we get in a big hurry and God's 
ways are not our ways or his timing's not our timing. So we need to wait as he will strengthen us as we do that. Um, and then David goes on to say, as we continue in the psalm here, that not only to wait patiently for him, but do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Don't fret. You know, I don't know about you, but I'll speak about myself. I can fret when I see, you know, people. It seems like, how are they getting away with that? And, and why is that happening? And, and Lord, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you drop a bus on their head or something like that? <laughs> and I'm just being honest, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, I can fret. So, and I begin to fret, you know, how much, you know, are they going to be able to do and harm and, and, and coming against me or coming against the church or whatever it is. And the Lord says, Jeff, quit fretting. I see it. I know what's going on. And I'm your strong tower. I'm your strength. I'm your defender. I'm going to defend you. But you just need to keep your eyes and focus on me. And when I am not trusting in the Lord and resting on him and committing all my ways to him, that leads to what? Me fretting. And not only does it lead to me fretting, but then uh, as we see number nine, you can write down, cease from anger, as he says. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. So if we begin to fret, and I begin to fret in my own life, I know that it causes me to be angry, and it causes me to have wrath if I don't deal with that anger and say, Lord, you know what? I need to give this to you. I don't think there's a single person here that you have an experience to where you're angry about something or a situation or at a person. And it is Paul the Apostle that said in Ephesians chapter 5, don't let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place for the devil. He said, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry. There are times where we're going to be angry. But don't let it to the point where you are sinning and where you let the sun go down on your wrath. That is something that I tell couples, that when they are in a situation where, you know, they're arguing or they're, you know, um, upset about something, that they need to make sure that they're not going to bed angry and having that wrath. You may have things that you need to settle. You may have to make decisions, continue to discuss it. But there have been couples in marriage that I have seen that they go to bed angry at each other every single night. And that anger turns into wrath and they're fretting. And it turns into to where it gives place for the devil. And you see, the devil uses that to drive a wedge between husband and wife, between parents and children. So we need to know how to deal with anger. And, and we've done a study before on how to get a handle on our emotions and what to do when we're dealing with wrath and anger and, and all these different things. And it's important for us that we know what the Word of God has to say in those things. But he says here that don't fret and don't get angry because uh, you're going to lose your rest, you're going to lose your peace and confidence in the Lord um, that you are to have. And it just causes harm is what, Paul, uh, is what David knows. He's at the end of his life. And I think David knows that as he's gone through those times where he was angry, and those times where he was fretting, that he realized that it, it didn't do any good. It only caused harm. So here David continues to write in verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. 
For yet a little while, and the wicked shall no, uh, be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. In verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so we get to inherit the earth as believers. We know that Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, that the meek shall inherit the earth. And you might be thinking, well, you know what? I don't want this world. This world's so messed up. But here's the thing. The context of what David is writing about is that he's writing about, and the implication is, when God comes and sets up his kingdom, when the kingdom of God is established, when Jesus comes and rules and reigns for a thousand years, and you and I get to rule and reign with him, what an exciting time that's going to be. And again, Peter writes about that in his last words to the church. He's going to talk about Christ ruling and reigning, and we have an eternal inheritance, and we're going to rule and reign with Christ. That's our future. I can't wait for that to happen. That when the Lord comes back, and we will come back with him. And remember, when we talk about the return of the Lord, we're talking about two distinct events. We're talking about when the Lord comes for the church and what is called the rapture of the church. And then he will come with the church in the second coming of Jesus Christ, which I believe will take place at the end of the tribulation period where he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. We will come back with him. He'll establish his kingdom for a thousand years and we get to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And that means that you and I are going to be given responsibilities so jesus tells the parables that be faithful with the things that he's given to us the parable of the talents and and the minus and and being faithful in what he's given to us that you're going to rule over 10 cities and five cities and two cities and and that we are going to be judging angels as paul said in the book of corinthians i think we're going to be judging angels what does that mean i think that in the millennium reign that we're going to be saying to this angel hey go over and run this errand for me and you you go do this and isn't it maybe that's just my imagination as i read the scriptures but it's going to be wonderful don't picture heaven as just sitting on a cloud playing the harp but we're going to be given as we're joint heirs with Christ, responsibilities. And so what you do now for him is going to determine a lot in what we're going to do in eternity and for his kingdom. You just be faithful to what God has given to you. And you seek the kingdom of God first. And you store up your treasures in heaven and know that it's a wonderful future for you and for me, that we get to inherit the earth, and it's going to be a wonderful time when that does take place. And then in verse 12, the wicked plots against the just, gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow and cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. In verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. So God will deal with the wicked. Remember when we went through the book of uh, Esther not long ago, when evil Haman was hung because of his evil plot? We sometimes look and, and today and we think our brothers and sisters that are being martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iraq, Places, cities that, that were Christian cities for 2,000 years that the people have had to left. They're, they're being beheaded. They're being wiped out. 
in Africa and Sudan and different parts of the world, and the persecution is increasing. And I think about that. And the Lord, you know, he has said, remember Peter, as he's writing to the Christians that are being persecuted, that the Lord sees, and they're the ones that are going to live. And it's going to be the wicked that is going to be cast down. And that's how David, he starts out this psalm. The sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. And we glorify Christ even in the persecution and be martyred. Jesus said, blessed are you. Don't worry about those who can kill, you know, the body, but you worry about God who can kill both body and soul. So there is Christ being glorified in that, even though as horrible as we see it that is going on. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters that are being martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And again, I believe that it's going to increase as we get closer to the return of the Lord. But then David goes on to say in verse 16, that uh, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. Remember Jesus said that what good is it if a man gains the whole world but he loses his own soul? What good is it? What good is it to have all the riches and lose your own soul? Satan will offer you the whole world. Usually he doesn't have to offer you that. Just a little pleasure here. A little bit of deception here. You know, promises of pleasure over here for people to forsake Christ. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? And verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish, and to smoke they shall vanish away. So Peter wrote that, again, that we have an eternal inheritance that is kept for us forever. And what we're being told here is always keep that eternal perspective. The wicked is temporary. They're going to be cut down. But you are going to be held upright. He holds you, um, uh, the righteous. I like that. And, and know that their inheritance, yours and I's, in verse 18, shall be forever. It's an eternal inheritance. You know, it is in Proverbs that says that, um, you know, blesses the man that leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And we want to do that. We want to leave something behind for them. But everything here is going to go away. And the inheritance and the riches that we have in Christ, as we will see in a couple weeks in Ephesians chapter 1, is forever. And... Also, what we're going to see, something very special that just blows me away in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Lord tells us that his inheritance is you and me. And I think, me? I look in the mirror and I think, me? I'm an inheritance for you, Lord, because I'm not very valuable. I'm pretty rough around the edges at times. I rejoice in the fact that, that in Christ I have his inheritance and the riches of heaven and the, and the glory of heaven. But I'm your inheritance? Isn't that incredible? It was Jesus that said, the kingdom of heaven is like this, that a man who found a buried treasure in the field and he sold everything that he could to buy the field to take the treasure out. 
And in that parable kingdom of Matthew chapter 13, I've heard it taught different ways. And I've heard it taught that, you know, that we're the man that gave up everything to, you know, have the treasure of Jesus and, and you know, and, you know, kind of like grit your teeth and, and all of this. And, and that's not what the parable is saying. I didn't have to give up everything. I did have to repent and come in faith. But who's the one who gave up everything? It was Jesus. And who's the one that redeemed me? It was Jesus. And you see, in those kingdom parables, he tells us that the world, or the field speaks of the world, and it is Jesus that gave up everything, was obedient to the Father, became a man, became a bondservant, and was obedient to death, the death on the cross. And Jesus came to redeem the world back to himself. So why did he do that? Did he redeem the world so he can have another planet? He has billions of planets that are out there. He redeemed the world so he, that he can take the treasure out, and the treasure is you. The treasure is you. He went to the cross for you because you are a treasure to him so that you will be with him for all eternity. Jesus, who said to that man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die for the sins of many, that is, for mankind. And I'm going to rise again after three days. And he redeemed us, which has the meaning of purchased us. He purchased the world. He purchased you and me because we're a treasure to him. Don't you ever think that you're not valuable to God because you are. You are valuable to him, and you are his inheritance. And that's why Jesus came and died for you, because of his love for you. And if you ever doubt the love of Jesus Christ, look to the cross. For Romans says that he demonstrated his love for us, that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, as we finish, we finish in verse 21, the, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, and those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his ways. You know, Proverbs 16:9 says that a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I'm so thankful that the Lord directs our steps. You just... Have your heart towards the Lord and delight in the Lord, and he is going to direct your steps. It's ordered by the Lord. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful in lens, and his descendants are blessed. And so as we see here, we know that it is David that says, that he upholds us with his hands. He upholds us with his hand. I like that. Because they're the same hands as I picture that. That Jesus says that you're in the Father's hands, you're in my hands, and no one's going to pluck you out. Isaiah says that our names are inscribed on his hand. But also those hands that as we come now to the communion table, that are hands with a nail mark that's there. Because Jesus went to the cross and allowed them to put those nails in his hands and in his feet. And he hung between heaven and earth. And he shed his blood and he cried out, it is finished. That I've done the work and I've paid the price.
and I've proven my love. You come and believe in me. Believe in me. He rose from the grave. He's alive. And if it means anything to anyone here tonight, as we come to the communion table, it's for the believer in remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if you're not a believer, it won't mean anything to you. Come to Jesus, who allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin as we enter into what's called a new covenant, a covenant that is based on his love and grace. And he loves you. He loves you and died for you. And if you're here tonight and you're not right with God, get right with God and, because he says, come. Come to me. You're my treasure. You're my inheritance. I died for you. And I desire to forgive you and give you eternal life. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, maybe we didn't get through all what we wanted to tonight. But, Lord, we thank you for these words that we've read these are words given to us. And Lord, I just want to tonight just pray that we would be comforted by knowing that we can trust and rest in you and wait on you in the times of difficulties or when the world turns against us. And I do want to pray, if there's anyone that's in this sanctuary or I know there's people out in the coffee shop as well, that if you're here, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you thought you're a good person or you're hoping you're good enough. Listen, none of us are good enough. The Bible says this, that we've all sinned. That's why Jesus came. He said, I came to save sinners. I, I came not for the well, but for the righteous. But I've come for those who have sinned. For those who need the great physician, that is Jesus. He didn't come to make good men better. He came to save men, all of us from our sins, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are good enough. And salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ, by believing in what he did for you and going to the cross because he loves you. He gave all that he had, his life, so that he can redeem you because you're a treasure to him. And when he hung on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. In other words, I've done the work, I've paid the price, and now you come in faith. The Bible says you recognize first you're a sinner. Second of all, you are to repent. That word simply means to change direction. You turn towards Jesus. And you turn to him for salvation because he is your only salvation. There is none other. The book of Hebrews says there's no other sacrifice for sin. He's the author of eternal life. And you give your heart and life to him to be a new creation in Christ, have a new beginning, to be forgiven of sin, and to be a part of the family of God. If that means anything to anyone here tonight, will you pray this prayer? That Jesus, I come to you and I confess that I am a sinner. And I believe that you died on that cross for me and I ask that you would forgive me. And I believe that you were put into a grave and you rose again after three days because you're knocking on the door of my heart. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. That you would sit upon the throne of my heart and I surrender all. I, I commit my life to you. 
And I thank you for loving me and for dying for me and for forgiving me. And I pray that you would fill me with your love and your Holy Spirit right now and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. If anybody prayed that prayer, will you do me a favor? Will you put your hand up? Don't be afraid. God bless you guys. I see you. Anybody else? And if you're listening on live stream, God bless you. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? We're not going to prolong this. But I just sense that there are people that are giving their hearts to the Lord, even on live stream right now. That if you are, that you would just call in and, and talk to me this week. Tell me the decision that you made. But Lord, I thank you for that salvation has come to this place. There may be others out in the coffee shop. But Lord, I thank you for the good news of the gospel is for everyone. And now as we come to the communion table, as we hold the elements in our hands, that we would remember how Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. And there would be a time of worship and awe and wonder of your incredible grace. I pray that you just minister to us as we just now are quiet before you in an attitude of worship. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The ushers are going to hand out the communion elements. I would ask, just hang on to them and we'll partake of them together.